This is the Game Changers Experience. Deep dive conversations with leading business disruptors, Olympic athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and influencers from around the world. This show will teach you insights about the winning principles in mindset, productivity, marketing, branding, entrepreneurship, business strategy, and more. Hosted by Productivity Authority, business strategist, former elite athlete, author, and public speaker, Adam Strong. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Game Changers Experience. I am so excited and super pumped today today, as I always am, of course, and I have an amazing guy that's on the show today. His name is Jonathan Horton, who is a two times Olympian, two times medalist as well, by the way, I forgot to mention that. He is the former captain of the US American gymnast team. On top of that, he is a best-selling author, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, if that's okay, Jonathan, and is also a five-times competitor of American Ninja Warrior, which we'll have to definitely talk about that. That's all good. So listen, uh, great to have you on the show today, Jonathan. Yeah, hey, thanks so much, Adam. Excited to have a chat with you. Definitely, man. Listen, you know, uh, it's interesting. I, um, I was kind of doing it. I, I mean, I know we had a great chat before and, and things like that. And we get so many different Olympians, you know, and uh, sports personalities on the show and that kind of stuff. But we've never had a gymnast. I have to admit, never had a gymnast. So I'm fascinated how the, where this conversation is going to go more than anything else. Our minds aren't quite right. So let's get <laughs> into this thing. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you a question because you're in so gymnastics, right? <laughs> so where did kind of that come from? As in, you know, because I know that you started your gymnastics quite early on, you know, right back from even the age of three, right? But where did the whole kind of, when did it all kind of start from you and why gymnastics? Yeah, so uh, I'll tell you the most ridiculous story of my entire career is actually how I got into the sport. So I started when I was four, actually. Um and my mom tells the story the best, but I was just an ADHD kid to the max, extremely hyperactive, bouncing off the walls. I, I remember as a young kid climbing the door frames, swinging on the top of the door frames at the house. Um, and it was really hard for my parents to keep control of me. Anyways, um, I was that kid. I, I used to have a backpack with a leash attached to it. Um, and that when my mom and dad took me out, they had to have me on a leash because if they didn't, I would just take off and do my own thing. Um, well, one day my mom took me shopping to a store and, um, she didn't have the backpack. And so of course she lost me. I went off and I started, I don't know what I was doing. I was four years old. I was looking at toys, who knows? And, um, so like 10 minutes goes by and she can't find me and she's panicking. She's looking all over the store for her four-year-old son and I don't remember this very well, um, very vaguely, but the manager of the store came up to her and said, ma'am, calm down. I spotted your son. And he pointed to the ceiling and there was a 25 foot support beam in the middle of the store that I wrapped my arms and legs around. I climbed it to the top and I was just hanging out up there. Um, I came down, didn't realize I'd done anything wrong. My mom told my dad about it that night when he got home from work and both my parents were like, well, our son is a freak. And they decided to put me in gymnastics the very next day. And um, to tell you the truth, you know, they were under the assumption that I had some crazy, like freakish talent. They thought I was going to be like a superstar. But to tell you the truth, like I wasn't really very naturally gifted. I was just a little crazy and very hyperactive. 
I, I wasn't afraid of things. But when I started, I, I wasn't um, I wasn't the prodigy that so many people think um, I was. I, I was not the strongest. I wasn't the fastest. I'm a notoriously slow learner. But yeah, I mean, that's how I got into it. It took many years before things started to click after that. Interesting. So started at the age of four, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, what does a typical four-year-old do these days? I mean, they, they watch TV, right? Or they might go watch, uh, play soccer or watch American football or play baseball with their dad or whatever it is. And there's you out training gymnastics, right? Doing somersaults and things like that. That's, that's crazy, man. Yeah. And, you know, I never played another sport. I never did another sport a day in my life. I found gymnastics, fell in love with it. Um, and it's what I did for the next 28 years of my life. Uh, you know, I look back now and sometimes I'm like, man, I wonder if I could have, I could have done baseball or, uh, you know, anything else, but I'm not a man of large stature. I'm only five foot one. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, let's see, what is that in meters? I don't know. I know, you know, we have a lot of listeners from around the world. We use feet and inches here in the U S but, um, I'm, I'm not tall at all. And my parents are very small. And uh, I, I, there's no way I could have done another sport. Gymnastics was the right thing for me. Yeah, you definitely wouldn't be any uh, good for basketball, I can assure you, for that one. <laughs> no, I'm terrible. I'm so bad. <laughs> um, what I was going to say, I mean, you start at the age of four, and then obviously, you know, as with any sport, you, you go through the career ladder, as I like to call it, right? Um, but in terms of the peak of when you were training for Beijing and, and London and, and, and so forth, what was a typical, what did a typical day look like for, for your training? Yeah, well, I'll, uh, I'll give you a, in the hardest years of my life, training for the Olympics. Um, so when I was getting ready for Beijing, I had a two-year stint of every morning waking up at 5 a.m., hitting the gym at 6. I would train from 6 to 8 a.m., and then since I was a, uh, a college student, I would go from my first training session to my classes. Those usually finished around one o'clock in the afternoon. Then I went back to the gym at 1.45 and I trained until six to 6.30. Then I was in the business school at the University of Oklahoma. My business courses were from seven to nine. So my day started at five and didn't end till nine, but then I had to go home and study. And those were the hardest two years of my entire life, that kind of training, training, you know, five, six, seven hours a day, sometimes along with school. Um, it was brutal, but it was, it was worth it. It's what I had to do to, you know, be able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And there were a lot of guys that were, I thought better gymnasts than me, but they weren't willing to do that kind of schedule. They, um, they, you have to have a special, you know, I'm not saying my, um, that I'm, you know, any better than anybody else, but you have to have the right mental fortitude to be able to get through a schedule like that. And I was able to survive it when a lot of people couldn't. Wow. I mean, I admire, I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, I admire people like yourself who go through rigorous amounts of training on a daily basis that make those sacrifices in, in order to, I suppose, in order to kind of go towards success because success means different things to different people, right? Now, you also, what I was going to say to you is, is that, you also captained the American team in, in gymnastics back in, I think it was 2008, right? 2012? So 2012 was the only year I was the captain. Yeah, okay. So that was in London, which is amazing. But what, as a captain, right? I mean, tell me about that role. And I guess, what are the skills that you learned? 
So for me, I never felt like um, I was this vocal genius that can throw out the right statement at the right time to get my team fired up and like, yes, let's go. I never thought I had the right words, but what I knew I had was a work ethic that could be followed. Um, so I did, you know, from time to time, I would say what I felt like was on my heart and mind to my team. But the number one thing that I thought I could do as the, the captain and the leader of my team was just outwork everybody and hope my team follows. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I really think that that's what happened the years that I was the leader of the the team was um, I just always told myself, I'm going to do more than anybody else. And people are going to try to keep up with me. I don't want to keep up with them. And um, I think that's why I was selected as the captain. Um, My coaches and teammates saw that I had that work ethic. And I, I, I do talk a lot about my work ethic not to try to brag, um, but I explain it to people all the time that I had to because I wasn't the most gifted person. Mm. I was a guy that um, I didn't win my first competition in gymnastics till I was almost 15 years old. It took me, you know, a long time like, um, to kind of figure out like what what made me tick in the sport, like what my niche was. And I there was like I said, there were so many people before me that were so much more gifted and talented and I would see what they were doing and just make the decision, okay, if I want to catch them or beat them, I've got to outwork them. And that was always my attitude of, I always had this idea in my head that I'm so far behind, I'm never going to catch up, but I'm going to try. And um, that was the attitude that I took into my elite career. Also, even when I was like the best guy in the country, I still felt like, okay, I know I just competed and became the national champion but maybe it was a fluke. Maybe I'm still far behind everybody and I've got to keep going. I'm going to keep outworking everyone. And I think that is what carried me to the success that I had eventually on the international stage and as a leader of the team. Nice. I love that. That's, that's a great analogy. Now I know that gymnastics, there are different disciplines. I mean, you were, you, you like the high bars. I think high bars was a, was a favorite of yours, right? And yep. the floor as well, which was another yep. favorite of yours and things like that. I mean, could, because of the uh, sheer vast, uh, short, should we say, in, in terms of disciplines, I mean, how how long did it take for you to really find your feet, find your feet in terms of a favorite event, and I suppose focus on that particular event? How long did it take you, and, and kind of what were the kind of aha moments behind that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you my favorite aha moment. Um, you know, I was always kind of an all-arounder, I guess you can say. I did all six of the men's events. Um, my weakness was the pommel horse. I was terrible on that event, but I, I was able to survive it. Um, but another event that growing up I was just awful on and didn't have a lot of hope in was high bar, which eventually became my best event. It's the event that I won a silver medal on. But the aha moment that kind of changed everything for me, um, there was a skill when I was 13 years old. Uh, there's this, I was, I used to love watching gymnastics on TV. I, I love watching like my heroes from the nineties and early two thousands. And, uh, I, every competition I could watch, um, I was, I was just in the zone watching it. Well, there's this guy who, um, was doing a skill around the high bar called a Kovacs. And the, a Kovacs is where you swing around the bar. Um, you let go at the apex and you do a double backflip over the bar and then you try to catch the bar again. It's called a released element. And so a Kovacs, um, when I was 13, was known as like one of the hardest skills ever to be done on high bar. And 
I remember watching that as a 13 year old thinking, I have to learn one of those. And so I went into my gym to go do like train the next day. And I told my coach, I wanted to learn a Kovacs and he laughed at me and he goes, John, high bar is one of your worst events. And you realize a Kovacs is the hardest skill being done today on that event. Even the best of the best guys in the world may or may not learn that skill. There's only like a handful of people that can do it. What makes you think you can do it, John? And I was like, I don't know. You swing really fast. You let go and try to flip and see if you can catch it. And so uh, that was kind of my like hyperactive, not being afraid of anything, mind kicking in. And uh, I remember he told me not to try it. And I went and tried it anyways. And I, you know, make a long story short, there's a lot of more details in here, but I ended up learning a Kovacs in two days and I was the youngest person in history to ever do it. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and so suddenly I've got this crazy skill that only the best of the best can do. I'm 13 years old. Mm. Word travels fast around the country and the world that a 13 year old learned one. And I was like, okay, I'm going to run with this. And I learned how to do like four or five different variations of it and decided to do this crazy routine with all the variations. It took me till I was in my twenties to perfect it. Um, but then when I got to the Olympic games, I nailed that routine, won a silver medal, almost got the gold. Um, but it took one thing, just one thing, um, for me to discover I can do this, even though other people can't, this is my niche. This is what makes me, um, unique on this event. And I never looked back and I just, I just took it and made everything that I could out of it. Fantastic. It's interesting because, you know, we, as a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs and business owners, and we talk about, certainly my message is around niching or niching, right? into a certain industry or going after a certain clientele or avatar or whatever it is, you kind of, you sport as a, as I suppose as as your kind of niche or niche and, uh, and how you kind of perfected it and things like that. I I was going to ask you actually, because, you know, gymnastics is, uh, you know, you have a, 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 tend to have, um, should we say a panel of judges, don't you, where they score you for, and and things like that. I want to ask you because, you know, it's really interesting in terms of the hours that you put in, whether it be the Kovacs or, or the higher bars or whatever it is, right? How important was perfectionism as part of sport? Well, it's, um, and did it kind of hold you back or, or did it kind of like, was it, was, was it kind of a hindrance? Well, it's a, it's a love hate relationship. That's, <laughs> for sure. that's what I was thinking. Uh, yeah. So I was very much, much a perfectionist and, um, what that did to me was it caused a lot of frustration trying to be a perfectionist because in a sport where a 10.0 is a perfect score and you never see a 10.0, you quickly realize, okay, I'm trying to be perfect, but I'm quickly seeing that this pursuit of perfection, I'm like, I'm never going to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, like I said, it drove me insane day in and day out to try these skills over and over and over again. It didn't matter if I did it one time or a million times, I couldn't do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And um, there was something that my coach told me growing up that hit me hard when I was training for the Olympics. Um, I used to, as a young kid, I used to break down and cry. I'd be in tears as a kid trying to perfect things and realizing I couldn't do it. My coach used to always say, John, relax. I want you to understand that in life, you're only going to be perfect 1% of the time. And I actually write about this in one of my books, The 1% Moment. And um, you know, it's like we're always, we always want to be perfect, but it's unrealistic. But then every now and then life gives us that moment of perfection. And I never 
days until the Olympic Games in 2008. I had my 1% moment. Um, because in 2008, I had a perfect competition. I did something that I've never seen anybody else do. I nailed all my routines. I stuck all of my landings. I had a perfect day, not a single mistake. And uh, it was the only moment in my 28 years of the sport where I had a perfect day. And so, um, you know, perfection was something that I aspired to, to get to. But at the same time, it hurt me in terms of frustration, but I had to grow in that and learn, okay, this frustration isn't helping me. I have to pursue this and not let it end my career by realizing I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect every day because that's not possible. It's interesting. You, I, I really wanted to kind of go in deep with that because, you know, a lot of our entrepreneurs and business owners and a lot of the perfectionists, as I say, listening right now, right? You know, I teach about the fact that there's no such thing as perfectionism, right? And even though you were kind of in a, an, in a discipline or a, a sport, which was, you know, it was all around perfectionism. And you kind of highlighted the fact that it was, you just need that 1%, 1% day to it, for it to be perfect. But um, I love that because that kind of really, I hope that, I hope that for you guys that are listening, by the way, I hope that really kind of helps you Whatever that you're doing right now, whether it be read a book, uh, write a book, complete a course, complete a project, any of those things that are holding you back. And, you know, it's interesting, John. So, like, it's amazing how many conversations I have with business owners and entrepreneurs. And then, so I was speaking to a lady the other day, right? And she's like, yeah, so I've been writing a book. And I was like, okay, cool. So she, um, she'd been doing, she'd been, she'd been doing for like two years, and I was like, why haven't, you, why haven't you got it published? Oh, it's because I'm rewriting it and, and, I'm, pub- and I'm like, are you 80% happy with it? She went, yeah. I went, get it published. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, it's interesting. You know, there's no such thing as perfectionism. I love it. Well, is- I mean, and yet that, kind of stuff, that kind of stuff can drive you crazy thinking, all right, this has to be perfect. Instead of, it's like, a, you know, you meet a lot of social media people. And what do they say? They say content is king. Hmm. All you're trying to do is create content, 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 until you get that perfect content that blows up your career. And um, I think that's what we have to do as athletes, as entrepreneurs. For me, I had my 1% moment of perfection at the Olympics, and my career took off after that. Mm. And I can carry that moment into everything else that I do in my life. And so it's like, it's a perfect example with the book. Write the book, publish the book, get it as good as you can, but don't dwell on it too much. If you like it, get it out there, start another one. Love and it. And you're going to nail it. It's just how it works. 100%. I wanted to ask you, and this is kind of, again, relevant to gymnastics, kind of going back into that, but I was always fascinated around the pressures of the sport because, you know, you get those petite Chinese gymnasts, by the way, I'm not being biased, by the way, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. You kind of, you know, and you, you, you know, and they get younger and younger every year and they have these petite bodies and, and things like that. But was there a, a lot of pressure in, in the, uh, in the sport and, and how did you deal with that? Um, so women's gymnastics and men's gymnastics are basically two different sports. Uh, people don't realize that though. The women experience much different pressures than the men. Um, Things are starting to change a little bit. Back, you know, years ago, there was a lot of pressure on the women to be very small and thin mm-hmm. and light. We're discovering now that that kept the women, the female gymnasts, from gaining the kind of power that they should have, um, because it was much more of an artistic sport years ago, where that slim, like ballerina body, was really important. Not so much anymore. Now you see these very fit 
strong athletic women. So those pressures are kind of gone on the women's side. We never really had that on our side. Mm-hmm. The pressure for us is consistency. Um, you know, for, well, especially in the United States, in the U S it's not, gymnastics isn't a very popular sport. Um, it, in other parts of Europe and Asia, gymnastics is big, like in Japan and China, it's one of the most popular sports. Um, in the United States, you know, truth be told, people just don't care. People don't care about, <laughs> they don't care about male gymnasts. Show some love, show some love. Uh, and so, so our pressure was, we didn't, we don't have a lot of guys that do it or make it to the elite level, but the guys that do, we have to be on our game if we want to be even in close contention with the rest of the world. Mm. So you get, you know, a group of maybe 10 elite male gymnasts. And if we're not on our game 24, seven, 365, the United States struggles. We don't have a deep pool of athletes. Okay. This guy's not on his game. Let's grab another one. Mm. Oh, let's grab another one. Like in China, they've got like hundreds of elite level male gymnasts. So, um, the pressure is always very heavy, whether it's a big or small competition. And, uh, for me, that used to really eat me up when I was a kid. Um, I used to always try to, like, I was a very anxious competitor because I, I wanted to do well. I wanted to have every day, every competition, I wanted to be the next best one. Um, and when I realized that I was, I had to embrace that I was an anxious competitor instead of trying to eliminate that. Uh, when I finally embraced it, I was able to turn my nerves into adrenaline, but that took a long time. I didn't figure that out till I was probably 18 years old. And that's when my career really kind of took off when I just accepted who I was and prepared for it. It's like I started making myself train nervous so that I knew how to compete nervous. And it made all the difference in the world. Interesting. Really, really, really fascinating. I was going to ask you actually, because, you know, we mentioned earlier on about you being the team captain and and, and things like, in fact, no, hang on a second. I want to go back to what you just talked about, which is how important as an athlete was getting in the, you mentioned about getting in the zone. What does getting in the zone mean to you and how can a a lot of our listeners get in their zones? Getting in the zone to me is simple. You take any distraction, all distractions, and you eliminate them from your life for the moment that is important, that 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 you're up against. So I did that so much so that when I was at the Olympics, I wouldn't talk to my parents. I wouldn't talk to my fiance at the time. She's not my wife. I was only... Uh, I was there with my five other teammates and there was nothing else that existed in the world. Um, I just, I had a, a mission and I had to accomplish that mission. And so um, it didn't matter what was going on back home. It didn't matter um, what was going on around me or any distractions in the Olympic village or whether I felt like I was hungry or not. Like I just blocked it all out of my brain. Didn't matter that there were 40,000 people in the arena and a billion people around the world watching. I was there one skill at a time, one routine at a time to do what I had trained my whole life to do. And I think that that's what being in the zone is. Um, Is it doesn't, you know, you have to take all of the things that can sometimes weigh us down and go, okay, for this one moment, I have to just, wipe it away, focus on what I've been training for my whole life. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, you know, I, I love that analogy, by the way, because if, if you're a speaker or you're a business consultant, whatever it is that, you know, in terms of your business, 
you know, I think what you've described there, John, is, uh, is, is an amazing analogy about getting in the zone because I'm a real big fan of it myself. I mean, I practice it a lot of the time and that kind of stuff. You just have to block out those distractions, man. There's so much going on in the world, right? It's hard to do. It's very hard <laughs> to do. Uh, I mean, it's, it's easier said than done. It's something that you have to practice. And there was a sign at the, uh, the United States Olympic Training Center Right when you walk into the gymnastics facility, there's a sign above the gym. Very simple. says, if you're going to be in the gym, be in the gym. That's all it says. And it's one of my favorite signs in the world because it, it, all that means is when you're here, there's nothing else that matters. Like you are here to focus and train and compete for Team USA. And I always remember that. And I still remember it now um, when I'm working, if I'm working on a project, if I'm writing a book, when I set aside 30 minutes to an hour to whatever I'm doing, like if I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. Like I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to be distracted. And it's just a really valuable lesson that I think we can all take because it's so easy today to jump on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, social media, start reading the news and suddenly, next thing you know, three hours later, you've accomplished nothing. And so we have to be able to block out the distractions in the world. And it takes work. That's hard to do. Hundred mm, percent, man. I totally agree. In terms, because I mean, twenty-eight years, long time, right? Long, long career, big career, and that kind of stuff. Were there any, um, I suppose, high or lows, high points and low points of your career? And how did you, uh, how did you kind of deal with it? Oh man, um, I'm the most successful failure in the history of USA Men's <laughs> Um, I, I, that's my self-proclaimed title that I've given myself, but a lot of people say, yeah, he is the most successful failure ever. Um, I have more last place finishes than for my era. Um, I also hold the record for, um, I hold the record for the most falls from a U.S. gymnast at major international competitions. Um, and then one of my greatest claims to fame is I led Team USA to the worst performance in history at a world championships. Um, I fell six times at the world championships. We finished in 13th place. Holy no team before and no team to this day has ever done that. That was in 2006 and it was all my fault. Um, my entire career was a wild roller coaster of ups and downs and twists and turns. And I many, many times lost the, um, kind of the trust and support of my teammates and coaches because like it's so 2006 was probably the biggest make or break moment in my life because that was my first world championship experience i was supposed to be one of the best gymnasts in the country that was going to lead usa to something great and then i went and fell six times and we finished in 13th place um that that was one of those moments where i nearly quit the sport it was two years before the olympic games in 2008 and I, my coaches and teammates were so angry with me because, you know, although gymnastics is an individual sport, you're doing your routine by yourself. There's a big team component mm. and my teammates needed me to perform well so that we can win a medal together. And when I didn't do my job, I let everyone down and I didn't think that I was going to have a shot at making the Olympics two years later because of that experience. Um, it was kind of a, uh, one of those moments where I was like, okay, this is as far as I could go. Like, this is it. I got to the world championships. I bombed. My career's over. I, can, I should just walk away. But, um, you know, there was just like this little voice in the back of my head that was like, no, John, like you're going to keep going until this is over, until you've got nothing left in your body. Uh, luckily, I won the Olympic trials in 2008, locked on to the Olympic team. 
but still when I got to the Olympics, people were like, Oh shoot, is Horton gonna like, is he going to bomb again for team USA? <laughs> like people, people were like really nervous. And so um, when I went and had the greatest day of my life, I really think it was because of that 06 moment. It was because of all of the horrible times that I had in my career uh, because without them, I don't think I would have worked as hard as I did. I think that had I just had kind of a, you know, one of those careers where I always had decent competitions, uh, kind of mediocre, I would have never had those like extreme dips, hit rock bottom, and those extreme highs. I think the most successful people in the world have extremely highs and extremely lows. It's just how it works, but you become better from the lows. Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually having a conversation with a good friend of mine um today we actually talking about our entrepreneurial journey right and it's exactly like that right you go on this like roller coaster ride it starts off like it, you get these kind of little tiny bumps right you get these tiny bumps and then as yep. you as you progress throughout your career those highs and lows get larger and larger right yeah. and it's simple it, it sounds exactly like your career right now when when you talked about the, the world championship and you got to a massive low then you come up to a massive high right with the yeah. Olympics back in 2008. I mean, that was, that's, uh, that's pretty fascinating. But, you know, guys, we're all on the journey, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to give you one, one more of my favorite stories because this, even this story blows my mind. So um, my first major competition, I was, uh, let's see, I was 11 years old. And um, it was called the Future Stars National Championships. It was for 11 and 12-year-old kids. 50 of us got to go to a competition and the top 15 were going to make kind of the first level of the national team in the United States. Mm. And, uh, I was super excited to be there. Um, you know, definitely thought I had a shot at being in the top 15. Well, performed on my first five events and I was in the top 10 going into the final routine, which was pommel horse. I told you pommel horse is my worst event. Mm. Um, so my coach told me I was in the top 10, one routine to go, um, I ended up going to the pommel horse. I fell um, six times, kind of like at the world championships, fell six times, but on one event, I scored a 1.9 out of a 10. And because of that final routine, I finished in dead last. I got 50th place in my first like big competition. Um, but the craziest part of this story, out of all 50 of those kids, only one of them eventually went to the Olympics twice and won two medals. And that was the kid that started in dead last. So I always tell people, like, I began my career the worst kid in the country, and I finished my career the second best gymnast in the world. Um, and so it was, you know, again, just another kind of picture of what my sporting career was like and what I think so many entrepreneurial journeys are. I've met so many entrepreneurs that they, they quit after, like, the first year because they're still at rock bottom. They... They want to be successful, but they don't give themselves a shot to come out of that rock bottom. They don't stick with it long enough to see what they're capable of. You've got to give yourself enough time in it to recognize the possibilities. Yeah. If you don't stick in it long enough, you don't get to see the possibilities. And that's what I was fortunate enough to do in gymnastics. I started in the last place, but I was like, oh, well, screw it. I'm going to keep going anyways. And eventually I became an Olympian. So. I, I think I tell that story to a lot of entrepreneurs and I see the light bulb go off as I'm saying it. I think it's fantastic. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? What's interesting is it's a bit like being in a boxing ring, right? And the more time you get hit, right? The more time you go to the ground, it's, it's when you get up and then you keep getting up and you keep getting up, right? It's exactly the same thing, right? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And eventually you get up and you take a swing and you get a good hit on the other guy and uh, they go, they, they drop and you gain momentum. So I love that analogy. It's all about waiting to find your momentum and everyone can find it if they stick with it long enough. Again, it's, it's a mental fortitude. It's a tenacity to keep moving forward. Yeah, totally, totally agree, man. I was going to say, you've got a best-selling book. Tell yes. us about your best-selling book. And, 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 the, and there were five key takeaways that within that book. What was the title of the book again? So I have two of them, actually. I'll tell you about the first one. Uh, the first book is called If I Had Known. Um, right after I retired, I had a, um, a uh, guy from Sports Illustrated called me, wanted to interview me and ask me about my career. And he asked me at the end of the interview, he said, so, John, um, if you could go back and start your career over, what do you know now that you wish you had known then that you would tell yourself? Right. And I was like, huh, that sounds like a great idea for a book. So I, uh, I actually started writing all of these things that I wish that I could have told my younger self. And um, so I, I wrote that. It's really just for like ambitious younger people if you're an athlete um that's what that book's for my second book is my autobiography it's like my whole life story from start to now um how i got into gymnastics all a bunch of little stories here and there how i met my wife what college was like what american ninja warrior is like um so just kind of detailed stuff about me that one was way harder to write by the way anytime <laughs> anytime you try to like put your life down on paper it's really challenging and i discovered that um, but the second book is called Falling Forward, How an Ordinary Kid Failed His Way to His Olympic Journey, or uh, to His Olympic Dream. And so I um, had, a, had a blast writing it. It sold really well in the gymnastics community. I've had some entrepreneurs pick it up and say they got a lot out of it. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to write any more. That took a lot out of me. I wrote two books in two years, but we'll see. Maybe I just need a break and I'll write another one. That's impressive, man. I, I love that. By the way, I know that you mentioned the American Ninja Warrior. You have, you, I mean, that's, I mean, I watched that program so many times and I just think to myself, where are these people coming from? They're like Spider-Man or Spider-Women. I'm, I'm like, I mean, how, how did you get into that? I mean, was that like after the, after your gymnastics career, you're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go and do, I'm going to go and participate in American Ninja Warrior because they just fancy it. No, actually, uh, back in 2013, after my second Olympics, I, I'd always been a fan of the show. I watched it religiously, uh, um, just loved it. But the, I'll tell you the honest truth. I watched it very arrogantly. Like I was so arrogant and cocky thinking like these people are awful. How are they falling on these things? That's insane. If I ever got on that show, I'd win the million dollar grand prize. No problem. And my wife always was like, okay, so go do it. And I was like, okay, fine. I am going to do it. So I applied for the show and I got on and I took the hugest piece of humble pie my first year on the show um, because I got on and what's really ironic is I fell on an obstacle, the fifth obstacle on the course called the ring toss. And at that very moment, I was the seventh best gymnast in the world on the rings. And uh, so just awful. I couldn't believe I went down, but then I was super determined to come back and, and keep giving it a shot. So now five years later, about to go into my sixth season, um, it's, you know, it's so much harder than I could have ever imagined. These mm -hmm. athletes on the show are incredible. They train hard. And, uh, anybody that watches it, you know, that thinks that looks crazy hard. You're right. It is. <laughs> you know, I was going to say to you, um, I mean, the training must be very different for American Ninja Warrior compared to the gymnastics side of stuff, right? Cause there's a, there must be a lot of strength and, 
balance and agility and things like that, right? Yeah. So a lot of the same skills that you need in gymnastics are also required in Ninja Warrior, which I think is one of the reasons that I have had some success. But the big thing to me is um, the the mental approach to Ninja Warrior. The the thing that you can't do, like in gymnastics, you create a routine and you train the routine, you do it over and over and over again, and then and then you just have to go compete and hope you don't make a mental mistake. And Ninja Warrior, you don't like we don't know what the course is going to be. We're not allowed to practice on it. And what we see on TV is our first time trying. Wow. Um, and so you step up on the, at the start of the obstacle course and it's like, okay, never done any of this. I know I'm in good shape. I know I've got good endurance. I've got good balance, but I have no idea if that's going to actually work on this course. And for me, the big challenge is when I don't know what I'm up against, I tend to hold back a little bit. The best competitors on the show are the ones that go, ah, forget it. If I fall, I fall. I'm just going to go all out. And that's really kind of helped me, um, you know, kind of look at things different in my life, especially Ninja Warrior. I've learned that, okay, I don't know what I'm up against, but if I hold back, I know I'm going to fall. And I've just, I've learned, it's just a completely different mental approach, but it's, it's, uh, it's very different than gymnastics, but it's, it's a blast. I love it. It's interesting because like, you know, with gymnastics, you talked about perfectionism the love and hate relationship but then ninja warriors like well you have to throw perfectionism out the out the window completely because you just don't know what you're actually getting yourself in for right yeah yeah no totally uh and there's there's no judges in ninja warrior um that all i have to do is get from one end of the course to the next and so it's just like all right you've got an obstacle in front of you doesn't matter how you get through it you just got to get through it it doesn't matter and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a totally different mental game than gymnastics. And so it's, um, it, I don't, I don't even know how to explain like what goes through my brain at this point when I'm up there, but I'm just like, all right, I'm going to go as fast as I can. I'm going to attack this obstacle. I know that I have to throw myself from this side to this side. I don't know how far that is. It could be five feet, could be 10 feet, could be 15, but I'm just going to go big. And it's like uh, you either go big or you land in the water. It's a 50-50 shot. You might as well go big. You know, um, I think that show was um, – did you ever watch a show called Endurance? Did you ever w- watch that? I don't think I've heard of Endurance. Okay, Endurance is basically uh, – <laughs> so it was uh, – it it's Japanese, right? And they have these different obstacles. So they'll have like, I don't know, like 100, 200 people got start off at the starting line. And they might have like, for example, they, the participants might have to run up a hill, but then there's all these like massive, huge balls going down the, down the, and then they've got to kind of like swerve in between. And then people get, knocked, when they get knocked over, you're out, right? And yeah. so there's different ones like, I don't know, for example, there'll be like, if you're in a rowing boat and you've got like a laser beam and you've got to, you've got to try and hit the, 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 the target and stuff like that. It's so funny. Um, I was kind of thinking maybe Ninja Warrior was off the back of endurance. Yeah, well, I mean, have you ever heard of Sasuke, which is the original Ninja Warrior in Japan? No. So in Japan, that's where Ninja Warrior started, and the show is called Sasuke. Um, And it's been around for like 30 seasons now. And it's one of the most popular TV shows in in Japan. And so then we brought it here. Now we've had 12 seasons in the United States. So those kinds of shows are very popular there. I love it. It's fantastic. It's very cool. So I was going to say, so your book is Falling Forward. And your first book was called? If I Had Known. 
if I had known. That's cool. So guys, listen up, right? If you, I hope that you've enjoyed some of our conversations, by the way, between me and John. And I hope that you've taken some great takeaways for you in your business and, you know, in your entrepreneurial journey. Hey, John, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so awesome listening into your stories. Yeah, totally. And thank you so much. And for anybody that is listening, if you're interested in following on social media, if you ever want to reach out to me, um, my Instagram uh, platform is jhorton11, jhorton11. Um, please send me a direct message. I'd love to connect with anybody that has any questions. If you uh, would love to purchase a book and have it signed, go to my website, hortonathletics.com. And uh, I love to connect with anybody um, that's out there that has any questions. So please reach out anytime. Cool. Appreciate you, brother. Listen, I just want to give a big shout out to Mr. Eric Swanson over in Scottsdale, Arizona for introducing me to John, because I'm sure that we're going to do some stuff together in in the future. I'm a big believer of that, actually. Yeah, no, Eric. If you're listening, you're the man, Mr. The awesome man. Eric Swanson. So, you missed that. You missed that. Eric Awesome Swanson. That's what we say to him. <laughs> He's a little crazy, but I like crazy people. So, um, yeah. So thanks so much for the connection. This has been great. It's all good. Listen, guys, hope that you've enjoyed this uh, episode of the Game Changers Experience. Make sure that you, if you haven't already done so, make sure that you listen in to the previous episodes if you haven't already done so. And also look forward to our next episode coming up on the Game Changers Experience. Have a fantastic day, week, month, year, whenever you listen to this. See you soon. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Hey, you guys, I just want to say thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Game Changers Experience. I hope that you got some amazing value, some great insights and golden nuggets that you can implement into your business straight away. I would really, really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star review on the button below. Have a fantastic day and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.